Our text today is 1 Kings chapter 21 as we continue our study in the life and times of the prophet Elijah. Pay close attention. This is God's holy word. And it came to pass after these things that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard which was in Jezreel next to the palace of Ahab king of Samaria. So Ahab spoke to Naboth saying, give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is near next to my house and for it I will give you a vineyard better than it or if it seems good to you, I will give you its worth in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, Yahweh forbid that I should give my inheritance, the inheritance of my fathers to you. So Ahab went into his house sullen and displeased because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him, for he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so sullen that you eat no food? He said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else if it pleases you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. Then Jezebel, his wife, said to him, You now exercise authority over Israel. Arise, eat food, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. And she wrote letters in Ahab's name, sealed them with his seal, and sent the letters to the elders and the nobles who were dwelling in the city with Naboth. She wrote in the letters saying, proclaim a fast and seat Naboth with high honor among the people and seat two men, scoundrels before him to hear witness against him saying, you have blasphemed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him that he may die. So the men of the city, the elders and nobles who were inhabitants of his city, did as Jezebel had sent to them, as it was written in the letters which she had sent to them. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth with high honor among the people. And two men, scoundrels, came in and sat before him. And the scoundrels witnessed against him, against Naboth, in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth has blasphemed God and the king. Then they took him outside the city and stoned him with stones so that he died. Then they sent to Jezebel saying, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. And it came to pass when Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, that Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money. For Naboth is not alive, but dead. So it was when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, that Ahab Ahab got up and went down to take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for every word that was inspired by the Holy Spirit, which has been delivered to us for our hearing and for our edification. We thank you especially for stories like this that reveal uh, the, uh, the, the end of idolatry and the horrible tyranny and oppression that comes from and through idolaters who reject your word and how we are to respond to this We ask you to guide us by your spirit into truth, Father, as we study your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you've paid attention to many crime dramas or legal dramas, you have heard characters say, I plead the fifth so often that it has developed into a kind of a joke. When somebody is telling a story about us that gets too close to something sketchy that we may have done or may not have done, we're liable to say, I plead the fifth. And that's interpreted as kind of a backhanded admission that, yeah, you, you probably did that. If your wife asks you, for example, did you eat all the brownies? And you say, I plead the fifth, that means you ate the brownies. That means you did it. 
but you know, you're, not, you're not confessing to it. All that silliness aside, the Fifth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which we're referring to when we talk about pleading the Fifth, the Fifth Amendment defines a number of rights that are guaranteed to American citizens when they are accused of a crime. When someone says, I plead the Fifth, or when a police officer says, you have a right to remain silent, they're referring to an accused person's protection against self-incrimination. You cannot be forced to testify against yourself. Now, why is that important? Shouldn't you be forced to admit if you committed a crime? Isn't, isn't silence really an admission of guilt? No, the framers of the Constitution knew how corrupt authorities could twist people's words, how they could misuse admissions and coerce confessions, and how you can get anybody to say anything under torture or even the threat of torture can get you to admit to almost anything. The memory of the corrupt star chamber in England loomed large in the memories of the framers of the Constitution. That star chamber was a court which used its power in a very arbitrary and abusive way to send many Puritans and other dissenters to cruel punishments. They often used torture to coerce and obtain their confessions. And the memory of that was behind, and the memory of similar behavior to that was behind the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution. Because of the Fifth Amendment in this country, even your silence can't be used against you, as, as we saw a couple of weeks ago in a very public court case where the prosecution brought up the defendant's refusal to speak as if that were an admission of guilt, and the, the judge vehemently ruled the prosecutor out of order in that case, and rightly so. Not only does the Fifth Amendment protect someone from being forced to incriminate themselves, but the Fifth Amendment also requires that the due process of law be followed in any proceeding that deprives a citizen of life, liberty, or, or property. And it requires the government to, to compensate citizens when it takes private property. Once again, the framers of the Constitution knew the evil potential of tyrannical governments which operate as a law to themselves. They take what they want, they do what they want, and they railroad anybody who gets in their way. That's what tyrants do. Over the last century, there have been many examples of oppressive regimes who, uh, from around the world who don't follow due process in their judicial system. In the Soviet Union and in uh, China today, I read somewhere that uh, 99% of trials in China over the last decade have, have uh, ended up in a guilty verdict. If you go to trial in China, there's no chance that you're getting acquitted. It's a show trial. These show trials are these dramatic arrangements where defendants are already assumed to be guilty before they even appear before the court. The sentence is already decided. The whole court proceedings are simply an empty drama to enforce the power of the state to do whatever it wants to whomever it wants, and you dare not get in the way. The Bill of Rights was written to keep that from happening here. Now, to be clear, anytime we talk about these things, we want to remind ourselves that the United States Constitution didn't create our liberties. The, the Constitution doesn't create due process. The framers of the Constitution didn't invent justice. At best, when our documents are 
uh, used appropriately. At best, our judicial system recognizes and defends those blessings of liberty that are granted to us by our creator. And the blessings granted to us by our creator are not subjective feelings about a utopia that we kind of wish that would exist if, if only you know, we could uh, get, get enough people to agree. Wouldn't it be nice if society worked this way? It's not just this, this empty you know, philosophical exercise. The triune God of creation has clearly defined justice in his law. God's law articulates prohibitions against abuses of, of power and abuses of authority. God provides procedures for human courts about how we get to the truth of a matter. God's law contains foundational protections for life and liberty and property. God's law even deals with malicious witnesses and false accusations. And so wherever God's law is ignored, Throughout time and throughout the world, wherever God's law is ignored, there is inevitably misery and oppression and chaos and fear and paranoia. Apart from God's law, we revert to an animalistic state. The strong prey upon the weak. The favored class exploits the outcast. Might makes right. And the very fabric of society is ripped apart and everything is upside down. We call good evil and evil good apart from God's law. Proverbs 28.4 says this, those who forsake the law praise the wicked, but such as keep the law contend with them. If you want to fight evil, everybody wants to talk about justice and, and the cause of justice. If you, want, if you want true justice, what does the Bible say? Keep God's law if you want justice. Keep God's law. The only remedy for wickedness is obedience to God and submission to the Lord Jesus Christ, submission to his perfect law and to his reign. We are only blessed as a society where our laws reflect his perfect law and where our laws are consistent with his, apart from which there is only misery and horror and darkness and ignorance. Our text today is a perfect account of a chaotic, lawless series of events that occurred under the reign of King Ahab. We've been studying the life and the times of the prophet Elijah for the last several weeks. We've been drawing lessons about how we are to live in a day of widespread cultural idolatry. King Ahab and his wicked wife Jezebel instituted Baal worship as the state church, and we see all the downstream effects of this idolatry. Ideas absolutely have consequences. No theology is a private matter just between you and your own brain. It always leaks out and it always colors the society. Your theology colors everything you do. And if you worship an impersonal force of nature, like Baal worshipers do, there's no such thing as justice or truth or due process. There's, there's no one even to define those things. There's no standard. You just take whatever you want if you're stronger than your neighbor. Well, the story opens with Ahab staying in the fortress city of Jezreel. Remember last week, Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. But Ahab has a lot of pads. He's got a lot of homes. He's got a lot of cribs. He's got a lot of places to go. He's got a mountain house. He's got a beach house. He's got a house in Samaria. He's got a house in Jezreel. He's got houses all over. He's, he, uh, he's lounging around here in one of his palaces in the city of Jezreel. And he looks over his backyard fence and he begins to pine for the vineyard of his neighbor, a man named Naboth. 
Naboth has a vineyard, and Ahab longs for his neighbor's property. So he goes to Naboth one day, and he makes him an offer. He says, give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden next to my house. I don't know what Ahab needs with a vegetable garden, or why even would you want to turn a vineyard into a pea patch, right? You know, maybe he wants to grow tomatoes or cucumbers or leeks, whatever you do with leeks. I don't know. Do you know what to do with a leek? I don't know what to do with it, but uh, that's, they didn't have tomatoes, obviously. I don't even know if they had, they might have had cucumbers. Leeks and cucumbers were in Egypt, right? But he wants to grow just common vegetables. He wants to grow things there that you could grow anywhere. Grapevines take several years to develop and to produce. They take lots of care. This vineyard would have been the product of many years of faithful labor. And Ahab says, I want to dig that up and I want to plant corn. Oh, you know, I want to dig that up and I want to plant tomatoes. Why? The only other time in the Bible that this word vegetable garden is used this way is back in Deuteronomy chapter 11. And there it's a reference to Egypt. God tells Israel, he said, when you were back in Egypt, you planted your own vegetable gardens and you had to hoe and dig and weed and water them. I'm sending you to a land where you can just walk up to trees and take the fruit from them. This is a land flowing of milk and honey. I have already cultivated the land for you. So vegetable gardens in Deuteronomy, the vegetable garden, the only time it's mentioned, it's associated with Egypt. And that's pretty much what Ahab's whole agenda has been, is to turn the land back into Egypt, to turn the land back into a land of idolaters, to return everybody to bondage under the false gods. So he wants to take a vineyard, which is a symbol of prosperity, which is a symbol of rest. It's a symbol of Sabbath. It produces wine. And he wants to take it and return it to a symbol of slavery and oppression and Egypt. So Ahab makes Naboth an offer. Ahab says, I'll tell you what, I'll give you a better vineyard. Or if you don't like that, I'll just give you money for it. And you can do with the money, whatever you want. But Naboth responds, Yahweh forbids me from giving you my father's inheritance. This is not Naboth's land to sell. Ahab should know how this works. Ahab is an Israelite. Remember, Jezebel comes from Tyre and Sidon. She's a Sidonian princess. Her dad's a Sidonian king. But Ahab should know God's law. This land has been in Naboth's family for at least 600 years, ever since Joshua and the army of Israel conquered the land and divided among the tribes. And according to God's law, you were allowed to lease your land for a period of time, but it always came back to you at the year of Jubilee, but you couldn't sell it outright. You couldn't give it away. You certainly can't just give it to the king. So ultimately, this is God's land, and you are not allowed to sell it out of convenience. Now, obviously, Ahab is not offering to lease this land. He's not going to let it go back to Naboth's family in the year of Jubilee. He's asking to do something that's unlawful. That's why Naboth's response is so firm. He said, Yahweh forbid. God forbids me. I don't even have a say in the matter. God forbids me to sell this to you. In this, Naboth is a faithful man. He knows the law, and he's more concerned about obeying Yahweh than he is concerned with complying with this king. He loves God more than the government. But you know, in totalitarian states, that's a felony, right? <laughs> it's a felony to love God more than the government. That's treason because the state gets everything. The state gets all of your affection. It gets all of your stuff. It gets all of your life and loyalty. 
Now, if there had been some modern evangelicals hanging around here, if Naboth had some friends with the you know, Gospel Coalition or somebody, they, they might have just recommended, Naboth, go along. Just do what he says. You have to do what you're told. The king told you to sell him his land. And don't be rebellious. Submit to that. Submit to whatever the king says. At the very least, just save yourself. Why would you go through all this trouble and all this hassle? The end is inevitable. He's going to end up with the land anyway. So just comply. Just comply. Just do it. Just do what you're told. The problem here is that the king also is covenantally obligated to obey God's law. And God holds the king accountable to his law. And the king is disobedient to God to insist on this transaction. Naboth, in refusing Ahab, is appealing to God's law, which is higher than the king's law. It's not even the king's law. It's the king's desire. It's the king's lust. It's the king's pining after this. But... Ahab knows the consequences. He knows that this is a a whole hornet's nest of trouble. Nevertheless, Naboth refuses the king's offer in obedience to God. Now, so far, you could make the case that Ahab's sin to this point is a sin of ignorance or defiance of the land laws in the Torah. He's ignoring God's laws regarding uh, inheritance and land, But you know, if you see something you want and you can afford to buy it and all of your commitments are met, um, it's okay to make an offer. It's okay. That's not a sin to make an offer on something. What happens next, though, is where he goes off the rails. He goes home, the Bible says, sullen and displeased. Have you heard those words before when it comes to Ahab? You did. You heard them last week. Because in the last verse of chapter 20, after Ahab is rebuked and admonished, three different prophets come to him. And he ends up being rebuked. And the end of chapter 20 is he doesn't repent. But in the last verse of chapter 20, the king of Israel went to his house sullen and displeased. And now here again, he goes and makes an offer and he's refused. And he goes home sullen and displeased. Like Cain, his countenance has fallen. Remember how we've talked before about guarding your heart and what that means. I think sometimes we... We think of our heart as this precious little teacup or this little china doll that we have to, we have to protect your precious little heart. But uh, the Bible says our hearts are desperately wicked. Uh, Jesus says out of your hearts come murders and theft and all manner of wickedness. Out of your heart comes adulteries. Your heart is not a teacup. Your heart is a sewer. Your heart is a septic tank. Your heart is a junkyard dog, and you got to keep it on a chain. So guarding your heart means protecting other people from your uncontrolled desires and passions and feelings. Your own lack of discipline over your heart spills out over other people. So you got to guard your heart in that way you love your brother. So Ahab is letting his heart spill out all over on the way home. He goes home. He throws himself on his bed. He faces the wall. He doesn't even eat anything. I just can't even eat. I'm so disappointed. And his behavior gets his wife stirred up. His emotions that are just everywhere gets his wife stirred up. This is where he openly turns to covetousness. His desire for something has consumed him. He's burning with lust and envy for this thing. He doesn't need it. He wants it. And his desires have eclipsed all duty and responsibility and honor. You can hear it in his voice. In verse 5, Jezebel says, Why is your spirit so sullen that you eat no food? Come here, baby. What's wrong? You've got to tell mama. Tell mama what's wrong. And he says in verse 6, 
It sounds like a five-year-old or a six-year-old, honestly. You know when your, your child comes in from outside and they're just out of breath and they're weeping over something? This is what Ahab sounds like. I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, give me your vineyard for money or else if it pleases you, I give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard, duh. You know, when they always said that, duh, at the end. That's what he sounds like. That's in the text. That's in the Hebrew, actually. <clears throat> That's what he, he, he sounds like a child. And Jezebel, the Sidonian princess, can't believe how he's acting. Her daddy would not have put up with this. Her daddy would never have responded this way. He wouldn't have tolerated insolence and rebellion from a subject this way. He would not have come home crying. He would have come home with a bloody sword if he had something he wanted and didn't receive it. So she says, get up out of bed, eat something, and be joyful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, she says. So she sends out letters in Ahab's name in inviting all the elders and all the nobles of Jezreel proclaiming a fast. Note this, it's not a feast. She's proclaiming a fast. If you proclaim a fast, that means something bad has happened and we have to get to the bottom of it. Some disaster, some calamity has occurred. Like when Achan stole some of the treasure from Jericho, and then they lost their very next military campaign against a tiny city, and um, they, they got real solemn and, and called an assembly and had to figure out, they had to get to the bottom of this. What has happened? Somebody has blasphemed God. Somebody's disobeyed God. Well, that's what's going on here. We have to find out who is the guilty party. This is a trial, but it's a show trial because Jezebel has already figured out who the guilty party is and what the verdict is. So she calls for Naboth to be seated with high honor. Now, Naboth must be pretty wealthy, and he's got to be fairly respectable. I mean, the king is his neighbor, so he lives in a good zip code. He's, he, lives in a, he lives on a good street. He's, not, he's got a good neighborhood if the king's his neighbor. So he's already respected, but she lifts him up on, with high honor in this little proceeding with a plot to destroy him, so it makes his fall look even worse when he falls from this high position of authority. She then sets up this kangaroo court with a couple of scoundrels, a couple of men of Belial, a couple of worthless men, to bear witness accusing him of some blasphemy against God and the king. And like the star chamber and like the Soviet show trial, the outcome is already arranged. There's no investigation. There's no work to establish the facts. It's all a setup. The sentence is already decided. He will be taken out of the city. He will be stoned. Now, this is what is so outrageous that it turns my brain inside out. And this is what's so frustrating. This is Jezebel's conspiracy against Naboth. But it requires compliance and participation from the elders and the nobles of the city. These, these show trials are opportunities for despots to demonstrate to everybody, we're in charge and this is what's happened to you if you cross us. But Jezebel can't pull this off by herself. And this is the most unbelievable thing, is that the elders and the nobles of the city go along with it out of fear of what she'll do to them, out of self-preservation. They could have all said, even one of them could have said, look, I don't care what you think, but what you're doing is really unjust here. This whole thing is wicked and satanic, and I'm having nothing to do with it. I'm having absolutely nothing to do with this, Jezebel. Leave me out of it. We're not doing this for you but evidently nobody does that. They go along with her outrageous demands. 
You see, this kind of tyranny requires the participation of the lower authorities. Remember how the lower magistrates last week were the heroes? Now we've got spineless cowards who are the lower authorities, the lower magistrates, who go along with Jezebel. They're complicit in what's about to happen. Injustice flourishes not only by wickedness, but by weakness. It begins with people who exhibit a lack of godliness, but it's fed and watered by people with a lack of guts. We start with godlessness, but, but we're supported by people with a lack of guts. It takes a lot of invertebrate men to allow stuff like this to happen. And for these men, these nobles and these elders, Jezebel is very big and God is very small. They know that this is not just. They know that this is not right. But... They go through with the plan, doing everything Jezebel has said. They bring in false witnesses against Naboth. There's no fair trial. There's no due process. They take him out and they stone him outside the city. Well, Naboth doesn't have a bill of rights. He doesn't have those 10 things, but he does have something better than that. He has God's law. He has the 10 commandments. And they started off with breaking the 10th commandment, do not covet. And they moved to breaking the ninth commandment, bringing in false witnesses against their neighbor resulting in breaking the sixth commandment, sixth commandment, do not murder. And then the eighth commandment, do not steal. All because we broke the first commandment. We set up other gods. Idolatry works itself out in this way in, in, in society. If you break the first commandment, if you're an idolater, everything else goes and everything is committed. There's, there are no stops. There's no breaks. There's no fences. There's no guardrails once you break the first commandment. Now, Jezebel returns to Ahab. She's congratulating herself for what she's been able to pull off. It like comes back to him and says, this is how we do things where I come from. This is how a king acts. So she tells her husband to arise and he got up. What does that imply? Has he been in, has, has he been in bed the whole time? Has he, has he been facing the wall, not eating anything the whole time? The whole time his wife was scheming and conniving? Well, if he was, then he can deny actively doing anything. He can deny, oh, she did what? Oh, there was, oh, I, I, oh, she must have done that without my knowledge. I, I, you, well, it's that woman, Jezebel. I mean, you know how she is. You know, what a handful, right? I mean, what, what can you do? What, what are you going to do? Um, and he uh, just lets it happen right under his nose. We read that Ahab rises up and he takes possession of the vineyard. Of course he takes possession because everything belongs to the state. And at the end of verse 16, it looks like they've gotten away with it. The steamroller of tyranny has rolled right over an innocent man. It's absolutely outrageous. This provokes righteous anger when we read this account because you, you just want to tear your hair out and say, I can't believe that somebody would do this. I can't believe that somebody would kill a righteous man and just take his property like that. But the God who hears everything and the God who sees everything and the God who knows everything is not going to let this pass. Jezebel got away with this in her kangaroo court, but there's a higher court. So we're going to pick up in verse 17. We're going to work our way through the rest of the chapter. Verse 17. Then the word of Yahweh came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who lives in Samaria. There he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he's gone down to take possession of it. God knows exactly where Ahab is and exactly what he's doing when God speaks to Elijah. Ahab has not escaped God's jurisdiction. 
Well, you may ask, why didn't God act more quickly to prevent this? Why, you know, God may vindicate Naboth now, but a lot of good that does Naboth, Naboth is dead. We might also ask, why did God deliver Moses from Pharaoh's infanticide edict and not save the other Hebrew boys who were killed? Why did God deliver Jesus and Mary and, and, and Joseph, Joseph and Mary and the baby Jesus, why did he deliver them from Bethlehem when all the other families in Bethlehem were affected by Herod's murderous edict and his armies? Why did God not save those families? Why does God allow James to be executed by Herod, but, but he breaks Peter out of jail? The, the Psalms are full of these kinds of questions. Like Psalm 74. Psalm 74, the psalmist cries out, why do you withdraw your hand, even your right hand? Take it out of your bosom and destroy them. It's a call for God's justice. God, why are you waiting? There's a mystery here to the mind of God and the work of God that's throughout the scriptures, from Job to the Psalms to Lamentations to Habakkuk through the Gospels. We have these questions why does God ever delay? Why does he allow the Pharaohs and the Herods and the Jezebels to do what they do? Moreover, why does God allow sickness and death to do its work? Why didn't Jesus hurry to Lazarus before Lazarus died? Why did Jesus deliberately linger? Well, we know he had a greater purpose. And what is the answer to all of this? All the questions that get asked throughout the Bible get pretty much the same answer. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. He is always, 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 always good. He is always, always just. He is always right. He is always merciful. At the end of the day, Naboth was delivered from one vineyard to a greater vineyard, from one house to a greater house, to a peaceful eternal Sabbath which Naboth would tell you today is greater than anything he ever deserved. And Naboth is crowned with glory as a faithful martyr. Ahab and Jezebel, on the other hand, are headed for judgment. They're headed for a lake of fire if they don't repent. They're headed for hell. Naboth is fine. Naboth was cared for by God in his mercy. This is a hard truth, but it's one we need to hear and one we need to know. The Bible never promises us immunity from the hand of the tyrant. The Bible never promises us immunity from the oppressor. The Bible never promises us that we will never have false accusations brought against us. We never have that promise. But God does promise justice and that he will repay the wicked. That is a promise. In 2 Thessalonians 1, Paul writes this, it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. God will repay with, with, with trouble those who trouble you, repay with tribulation, and to give you who are troubled rest. It may be eternal rest. It may be everlasting rest, but he will give you rest, and he will repay with tribulation those who trouble you. He continues, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired 
among all those who believe. No matter what else happens, God will vindicate his saints. The oppression and the tyranny and the murder of his saints ignites God's wrath. It ignites his justice. There will be justice. And always remember, when you ask these kinds of questions, remember that we're talking about the God who did not spare his own son, but who through the death of his son saves the world. It worked out our salvation. There's never been any greater injustice than the crucifixion of Jesus. And yet through that great injustice under the hand of tyrants, he's worked out our salvation. So Yahweh sends Elijah to Ahab. And uh, Yahweh says to Elijah, Yahweh says to Elijah, verse 19, you shall speak to him saying, thus says Yahweh, have you murdered and taken possession? And you shall speak to him saying, thus says Yahweh, in the place where the dogs, I'm sorry, yeah, but the place where the dogs lick the blood of Naboth, dogs shall lick your blood, even yours. So Ahab said to Elijah, have you found me, O my enemy? What does that sound like? Have you found me? It sounds like Adam hiding in the garden from a God who you can't hide from. Oh, you found me. Yeah, I found you. Or it's like Cain when the Lord comes to him and he says, God says, I heard your brother's blood crying out to me from the ground. Um, yeah, I found you, Ahab. It was pretty simple. You're in, the, you're in the garden. You're in the vineyard of the man you just murdered. And he answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of Yahweh, verse 21. But I will bring calamity on you. I will take away your posterity and will cut off from Ahab every male in Israel, both bond and free. I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, both kings whose dynasties were cut off because of their idolatry. God says, I'm gonna make your house like their house because of the provocation with which you have provoked me to anger and made Israel sin. And concerning Jezebel, Yahweh also spoke saying, the dog shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. The dog shall eat whoever belongs to Ahab and dies in the city and the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the field. This makes it very clear. If you had a question, about who God sides with in these kinds of scenarios. If you have a question, does God stand with the oppressor or with the oppressed? Here's the answer. God sides with Naboth, not Ahab. God sides with Abel, not Cain. God sides with the Hebrew midwives in Egypt, not Pharaoh. God sides with the mothers in Bethlehem, not Herod. Lest you ever doubt, God stands eternally with the oppressed against their oppressors. God stands with the abused against the tyrant. God stands with the unborn and the, and the child against those who would murder them and rip them apart. God stands with the oppressed. The elites in our day, they wanna talk about being on the right side of history as if they're pointing us towards some progressive utopia where everything's gonna be better once they get rid of these benighted Christians who are always trying to pull us back into, backward into history with their old books and their old, their old morals, and their old methods, and their old laws. If, if we could just get untethered, then, then we could really develop a utopia. And they talk about being on the right side of history, but they talk about being on the right side of history while they stand with idolatry, while they stand with the perverts, and the power hungry, and the warmongers, and the baby killers. It's not the right side of history. Where has God ever stood with them? The Bible tells us who, in fact, is on the right side of history, and we get it in these kinds of accounts. Verse 25, 
But there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of Yahweh because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up and he behaved very abominably in following idols according to all that the Amorites had done whom Yahweh had cast out before the children of Israel. Jezebel was terrible, but Ahab bears the responsibility for what was going on in his house, even if he was laying in bed the whole time that she was doing it. At no point do we see Ahab actively leading his wife away from Baalism toward the worship of Yahweh. God holds Ahab accountable for everything that has happened. Just as Adam is responsible for the fall, we read Eve was deceived, Adam fell. Adam is responsible, Ahab is responsible. Verse 27, so it was when Ahab heard these words that he tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his body and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about mourning And the word of Yahweh came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, see how Ahab has humbled himself before me. Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the calamity in his days. In the days of his son, I will bring the calamity on his house. Now, here is Ahab exhibiting some form of contrition, some kind of repentance, some kind of sorrow and humility. I don't know if this is what the Apostle Paul describes as godly sorrow, the kind that leads, uh, that, that produces repentance leading to salvation. Is it godly sorrow or is this the sorrow of the world that brings death? There's no way of knowing. We can't preach Ahab into heaven or into hell. We don't know if this was saving faith. But if this is real repentance, if this is genuine repentance. And God answers this with mercy. He says, this is not gonna happen in Ahab's day. All this judgment that I promised, I'm gonna save it for the next generation. We'll see how the next generation pans out. But if God shows this man mercy after all that's happened, does that make you angry? (laughs) Does, Does that make you upset that God would show a man like this mercy? Or does it make you rejoice in God's grace to even a weak-minded, spineless rodent like Ahab. At the very least, in an earthly sense, in a temporal way, God sees Ahab's humility before him and God postpones the judgment on Ahab's house. God doesn't cancel it. It'll be up to Ahab's sons to repent. We'll see how that goes. But see how ready the Lord is to exhibit mercy in the midst of wrath in the face of everything that Ahab has been up to. This little glimmer of repentance, this little movement toward acknowledgement of his sins is met with a flood of God's grace and God's forbearance. And if I begrudge God for his mercy, that puts me in opposition to God. I'm, I'm like Jonah griping that God spared Nineveh. I'm like the older brother who complains over the way that the father received the prodigal son. I'm a stinking Pharisee if I don't act like God's mercy and grace is not the best, most amazing, wonderful thing ever, no matter who it's displayed toward. This grace that none of us deserve. I don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. Ahab doesn't deserve it. We always pray first for the salvation of the wicked, hoping for this kind of outcome. We hope, that's our number one prayer, it's our number one hope, is that they would repent and turn from their sins. And then we don't get all angry and bitter when God saves them. We should rejoice. So I don't know where the eternal soul of Ahab is today, but I do know that Paul is rejoicing around the throne of Jesus today with people that he persecuted. I know that King David and Uriah the Hittite 
had to have made up a long time ago. I know that Joseph, when he saw his brothers, even after they deprived him of his life and sold him into slavery, Joseph rejoiced to bless his brothers and to feed them because all things get corrected and all things get redeemed and all things get reconciled in Jesus. Not apart from Jesus, no, but in Jesus, who is the revelation of God's grace and truth, all things are reconciled. That's what Colossians 1 says. It pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell and by him to reconcile all things to himself. By him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. So when we suffer injustice and unfairness and when we suffer false accusations and cry out for judgment, our prayers are heard by the one who suffered through the greatest miscarriage of justice in history. False accusers were brought against Jesus. A kangaroo court was set up to try him. Jesus was killed outside the city, just like Naboth. Jesus was also executed under a false charge of blasphemy, just like Naboth. And God raised him up. God overturned the courts and the verdicts of Herod and Pilate and Caiaphas and the angry mob. And he will likewise overturn the verdicts and, and overturn every false accuser against his bride, the church. Jesus told a parable about a vineyard, didn't he? It was a parable that pretty much mapped out the whole history of Israel. Remember in that parable, the, the master plants a vineyard and then he leaves it in the hands of the vine dressers. And then he sends his servants one by one to go receive the fruit from the vineyard. But the wicked vine dressers kill his servants one at a time. And finally, the master sends his son. And they kill him too in hopes of seizing his inheritance, the way that Ahab seized Naboth's inheritance. And then Jesus finishes that parable with the question. He says, therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? They said to him, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. And that's what the Lord does with Ahab in Ahab's house. You kill my servants, I'm gonna kick you out and I'm gonna put somebody else in charge. And that's what the Lord did with Israel as a whole. You kill the son of the master, you crucify him, I'm gonna kick you out, I'm gonna destroy you, and I'm gonna turn around and put Gentiles in charge of my heritage, my vineyard. The Lord takes any persecution against his beloved personally, and he comes to defend them. So where does that leave us in a world of Ahabs and Jezebels and Naboths? What comfort or instruction do we have from this account? Three very quick lessons, very quickly. Number one, if you are going to follow the Lord Jesus, you must expect to suffer injustice in the world. It's not a surprise. You will suffer injustice in the world. First Peter 4, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you also may be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. Don't think it's strange when you're persecuted. Expect it and say, yeah, that's, that's what was coming. I knew that this was coming. And now I get to rejoice because I'm sharing in Christ's sufferings. For them, it's judgment. For us, it is glory and it is blessing. The servants of God must be prepared to pay the price of obeying God over men. 
And that's what Naboth did. He said, I'm not obeying you, Ahab. I'm obeying God. And he paid the price. You must be prepared to pay the price. Followers of Jesus should expect that our faith is going to bring us into conflict with the wicked. Do not be surprised when that happens and do not think that something has gone wrong. That is a design. That is not a defect. It's supposed to bring you into conflict. Your faith and your trust in God will bring you into conflict. That's the first thing. Quickly, the second thing. God will bring justice to the wicked. The Supreme Court of Heaven sorts everything out. Nobody gets away with anything. The God who sees and hears and knows everything will always judge righteously. When you get frustrated and at your wit's end over the crazy things that happen in our world, and you think, how could they do that? How could they, who does it get away with that? What is it? You know, you gotta, gotta, gotta keep, see justice here. No, nobody gets away with anything. Nobody ever gets away with anything. God will always judge righteously. It may not be on the schedule that you prefer. It may not come in the way that you think it needs to come. In fact, it may come through the conversion of the wicked, but none of that is really our business. What is our business is to call on the judge of all the earth to show himself mighty and then praise him when he does that. But God will judge righteously. And the last thing, the Lord exhibits mercy in the midst of justice. That's who he is. He is merciful and he is gracious and he's slow to anger and he's abounding in loving kindness. Ahab just needs to move the needle a little bit. Just show a little bit of humility, just a little bit of contrition. God says, well, okay, I'm not gonna do this in your day. I'm gonna spare you, Ahab. I'm gonna do this later on. I'm gonna delay judgment. That's the same mercy that I run to in repentance. That's the same mercy I need to live. I don't begrudge him of that mercy. I rejoice that on the cross, Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing because that's the same grace he shows me. If you want hard, straight up, cold justice with no way out and no grace all the time, we're cooked. We're done if that's what we want. But that's not what we get. Thanks be to God that out of his tender mercy, he has given us Jesus and he showered the world with his grace and truth through Jesus and has forgiven us and has received our repentance and has given us faith and has given us his spirit to direct our steps. Know this, that God is patient and loving and forgiving, even to a knucklehead like Ahab, even to a blockhead like one of us. Let's give thanks. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy, which you pour out every day. And we thank you uh, for the way that you uh, will not let anyone get away with anything. We trust in this. And so we pray that your work would be done speedily. We cry out just like the psalmist, Lord, do not delay, but shake the world and uh, bring everything to right and uh, lift up the oppressed and put down the oppressor, put down the tyrant and give your people liberty and peace and rest and protect these gifts, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.